Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Larry Abramowitz from Broadway Capital Partners. Before we dive in, I want to ask a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds to please head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thank you so much for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Larry founded Broadview Capital Partners in 2014 to acquire, remodel, and rejuvenate distressed and abandoned manufactured housing communities as well as multifamily and commercial properties. Larry has bought and sold over $40 million in assets and owns and operates 16 mobile home parks in the Midwest and Southeastern United States. Larry holds a BA in manufacturing engineering from Boston University and an MBA in finance and marketing from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Larry, we are excited to welcome you to the show today. I'm also very excited. Thanks for having me. I always listen to your podcast. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. And I guess you know how these start out then, right? We'd love to to learn about your story and how in the world you got into manufactured housing communities. I live in, in Miami, Florida, and I was buying when they were available. We were, I was buying a lot of uh, distressed properties here locally single family homes. So I did a little bit of everything. I did single family homes, apartments, land, industrial. I did retail and office. So whatever I could buy in foreclosure from the court that made sense that, the, you know, the multiples were huge. And it was, it was a matter of, you know, these are all cash deals, a lot of undisclosed information. So some of it was surprised, you know, when you bought these deals, you couldn't I didn't know a lot about it, but I started buying those deals and making great returns and multiples. Most of these were, you know, distressed uh, deals, foreclosed deals, abandoned properties. And was um, this back like from like 2008, you know, the Great Recession that you started doing this or how long? No, how long here was 2000. You know, this started later than that in, in at least in this area, because a lot of these homes that were in foreclosure, they... The courts took a long time to get through the process. So a lot of these were delayed way beyond 2008, 2009. I mean, a lot of these cases were in court to the 2012, 13, 14. They were still uh, getting foreclosed. So we were still able to pick up these assets at great prices. So you know, I did that for a while. Then that dried up. I started 2014 doing this. And then you know this, this kind of dried up. So I moved to multifamily. I studied the different asset classes since I already did them all and or most of them. So I decided to do multifamily just because I, after analyzing all these classes, I said, people need a place to live. You diversify, you know, with the different tenants, you're diversified. So I, um, I had never raised money before and that was the first time I raised money. So I decided to buy, um, you know, hundred plus unit uh, in Daytona beach. And, you know, that was in 2018 after that, try to buy more multifamily and, you know, the deal, I syndicated that deal. I had never raised money. And for that deal, I raised four and a half million dollars in, in about three months, uh, just with my network, uh, I was able to buy that deal. We did very well. 
uh, and I try to buy more more of those um, multifamily deals and mostly in Central Florida. And at that time, it was getting very hot. Um, you know, the multifamily sector, especially in Florida, so the cap rates were very compressed. And after you know, doing offers for six to months to a year, I said, I have to find another asset class that where I can have deal flow and not lose against the big institutional investors. Somebody told me about mobile home parks. Somebody introduced me to a guy that was doing this for a while and met with him. He told me the what about the asset class. I thought it was interesting. He said, if you're going to do it, you got to go to mobile home park university. And at least learn the business. So I, I went to Frank Rolls class in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, I think he had it at, at that time. So I went there for the weekend and did the class. And it took me about six months to buy my first park. Wow. Um, I mean, I was very meticulous analyzing every deal. Also, I started looking in Florida and I was finding that the cap rates were even more compressed in the mobile home parks in Florida than in multifamily. But so I said, I'm not going to switch asset classes to buy a lower cap rate. So then I started looking outside of Florida. Found my first deal through a wholesaler in uh, Wichita, Kansas. So it took me a while to pull the trigger. It was uh, also a distressed park, which was kind of my specialty, buying distressed assets. But this, I was used to doing it locally. This was far away. I went to see the asset. I really liked the location. It was next to the best uh, school system there in Wichita. I was actually fencing the school, but it was just one of these properties that were used to be full. The owner uh, uh, inherited the property from his dad and he basically run it to the ground. So I picked it up very, very uh, inexpensively. I think it was 4,000 a lot. Hmm. Um, the city wanted it shut down. So my understanding was that this park, uh, had been around the block. I think I was, when I went to the city, they said I was the seventh buyer and it had, a, the city had changed the code because of this park. They didn't want uh, mobile home parks. And because the owner was so bad with the city, they had put all these clauses where you have to spend a lot of CapEx to be able to, uh, within 90 days of buying the park, you had to do the roads, do tornado shelters, you got to do lighting. They had all these requirements that were, you know, nobody was ever going to buy the park because it didn't work. So I was able to meet with the city, show them what my plans were to bring the new homes. And, um, but I said, I can't do it in 90 days. I mean, you got to give me a couple of years to get this done and I'll do it. So I convinced them and they actually changed the code. And then I convinced them also to increase the zoning. So I got it from 62 pads to 79 pads. Oh, fantastic. Um, so that was my, my first deal. Uh, I didn't know anything about the business uh, other than what I learned in, in, in the, the university or the weekend uh, course with Frank. And I just uh, went at it. I, um, after I got my dealer's license, bought my first uh, Clayton home. Got it uh, installed and made it a model home and made it my home. So I basically spend about a week every month for the first year living there, you know, and uh, to learn the business and really, you know, try to turn the park around. I mean, I I couldn't afford a manager. I had somebody live in the park that still works with me and she's doing an amazing job with the park. But at the beginning, I couldn't afford it. So I, you know, we had a deal where, you know, she was still keeping her job and I was, you know, was helping her turn the park around. So between both of us, we were able to now got it. We're, I think we're at 55 to 60 occupied lots. When I got it, it was like a 10 or 15. Mm-hmm. And we brought in right now, I think we've, we brought in almost 40 homes into this 
brand new homes. So it's, you know, we paved the roads, added street lights, brought in about 40 new homes, sold some, rented some. I also bought used homes. So a little bit of everything, just learning everything from setups to fixing, you know, we had to change the sewer line there. Um, so just, that was a, a really, uh, and when, was that that? Was, when was that when you closed on the Wichita park? 2020, July, 2020. And actually to top it off, I got really sick with COVID right before closing and I could not go to the park to close. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was a crazy thing because I had to close, you know, from, from my home in Miami, uh, I could hardly speak. I mean, I, I was mm. very, very sick. Um, and it was a big deal because at that time the title company couldn't do the closing remotely. And it was a big deal because they made an exception to let me close remotely. Jeez. So I, I basically took over this deal without even being there. So that was, yeah, your first was, deal. Uh, that sounds scary. Let me ask you this. Larry, what was your background prior to all this? I mean, I saw you had a BA in manufacturing engineering. What, what, what did you have another life uh, as an engineer? Yes. Well, I be, way before when I graduated, I uh, worked at General Electric and aircraft engines and appliances division in manufacturing and moved to Colombia when I married my wife, Colombian, and I was running there a paper factory. You know, we made paper and cardboard boxes. So I was uh, doing that for about five years. And then we moved to Miami and I was doing actually at a, a flower importing and distributing company, you know, we imported flowers and sold to supermarkets around the U S so that was a, a business I did until 2000 and actually to 2020, I was doing that. Wow. Until COVID hit. But yeah, that was, uh, that was my, my main business until I, you know, got set up with the real estate. Wow. So, you know, pretty entrepreneurial it seems like yes. your whole life right that's fantastic so you you've closed on your first park july 2020 right now we're you know recording this it's august 2023 and you're already up to 16 mobile home parks <laughs> yes you've just been on a on a, a rampage man that is fantastic that's that's huge growth you know tell me about your team tell me about your operations and and how you're you know able to uh you know, get so many deals done. Yeah, well, the first four parks I bought on my own, didn't raise any money from my investors, and I wanted to really learn the business. I did that for two years. Uh, you know, I bought a park July 2020, the next one November of 2020. Uh, and these were all rough parks. I never, I haven't bought a, you know, a stabilized park yet. They're all been real, like crazy turnaround stories. Um, then I bought another one in, uh, in Wichita. That was in May of 2021. Then I bought another one in Wichita in September of 2021. So a lot of it was to scale, to be able to afford a manager and, and not have to be you know, there. I, I did 89 segments in American Airlines in my first year, just you know, between, I was in going to Peoria, Illinois and Wichita, Kansas. So, hmm. I mean, the biggest hurdle was actually getting you know, the scale to be able to hire people to help me, not me having to do a lot of the work and being able to afford managers. So um, that was kind of the first step. Uh, and then I decided to start a fund last year, uh, launched in uh, at the end of May of last year. And that's how we also got to scale. Before I did that, I started building the team before I raised the funds. So um, right now we have a, 
you know, we're fully integrated property management. So we do, you know, have a director of operations that basically manages all the managers, every, every community or group of communities, because we do clusters in different areas has a manager. Sometimes we do have a maintenance uh, for a couple more, more maintenance people on site. Uh, leasing, you know, in one of the bigger portfolios, we have a, you know, a team of five people in that community. And we hired also a project manager this year, which um, is helping me with all the, you know, all the infill and all the CapEx projects that we have on these value add deals. So, um, and we have accounting, two people in accounting, um, one in marketing and, and we have a, just an administrative, somebody to help us that does titles and a lot of administrative work for all these communities. So, you know, now we, we have a, a pretty big team and, um, you know, we're still growing and. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's an awesome three years, dude. Um, what, what do you think is the toughest hurdle to overcome in mobile home park investing? I mean, you've seen it firsthand. Managing park on homes. <laughs> I think uh, park on homes, I, I was very, you know, skeptical of everybody that say stay away from park on homes. And I, I bought a, a portfolio with 240 park on homes. Most of them were newer. And after a year of, of managing this portfolio, we pretty much learned you don't make any money on, in park on homes. Um, you, if you're lucky, you break even, even if they're newer. Um, so. You know what? What I think that the best thing to do with them is to sell them and sell them as fast as you can. And and either so right now we signed up with a new program with Triad. You know, so we're going to try to do their one of their programs where we finance them. You know, legally to the residents, or you know, they'll finance them. We use also Twenty First Mortgage and PEP Lending. So we have all these different programs set up in all the communities. So whatever makes sense for the homes, we're going to try to sell them. Uh, quickly and and I mean the beauty about also getting park or home is you can set up your lot rents to be you know to to be whatever you want them to be sure. I mean, as far as you can split that any way you, you know you make sense so mm -hmm. we can uh, the good thing is when you sell these homes you can set up the lot rents a lot higher so that helps with the value of the property so um totally and just for the listeners that aren't familiar triad 21st mortgage and pep lending those are all lenders like chattel lenders, right? On the Correct. manufactured homes directly. So those, they will partner with the park owner and the end buyer of the home to provide financing, right? Correct. Very so, cool. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's a, that's a tough part. I agree with you. I, my model is the tenant owned home model and, you know, converting the park owned homes as quickly as possible to the extent where we are like not making money on the sale of the homes, you know, we're just, we just want them to become tenant owned homes. The income from those, like they, they just don't turn over typically. It's just the park owned homes are the ones that turn over. So I agree with you. That's a tough hurdle, but what about infill? I mean, it's that's time and time again, you know, one <laughs> of the toughest value add components. There's just so many moving parts and you've done quite a bit of it. So what can you tell us about infill? And, and would you say that that's, you know, one of the more difficult aspects about, you know, the, the, these value add type of parks. Yeah. That was on my list also that it's, it's another one that's a huge hurdle is infill, but infill's not only the capex you need to bring in these homes and, and set them up. I mean, you got to get a dealer's license to be able to buy from the manufacturers. Um, you have to find a setter to set up the homes. You got to do the utilities. Um, 
So it, you have all these different things, electrical, plumbing, you got to get the pads prepared, you got to do a setup. Some states you have uh, HUD, which means you got to get a, a, um, a HUD inspector to approve the, the, the installation of the pads. So it can be, you know, sometimes it takes 30 days, sometimes it takes more to set up a house, depending on the state and, um, and get it ready to go. You got to get somebody to do the skirting to put around the house, then you got to build the, the decks and the steps. So, you know, that was a huge learning curve. I mean, at the beginning, I thought I could bring in homes and they'll sell like, you know, my first community that you bring them in and they will sell, right? It's uh, yeah. I thought it was a no-brainer. <laughs> and when we first started, we were paying for, you know, really bigger homes. We were, you know, 38,000 delivered. Those homes went up to 57,000 at the peak of COVID uh, with inflation. So they became less affordable. They were still affordable, but you know, because everything was going up, but it was it was expensive for the typical resident we were that was applying to live in these homes. So um it became a little challenging, those homes that we paid a lot more money for them. But the info, yeah, to get somebody approved, first to convince somebody to buy a mobile home and then to, you know, to get them approved on the loan, it's a very challenging process. It takes a lot of effort, it's a big team effort. I mean, we have uh, two meetings a week to go over, you know, the sales calls and see how, you know, how the leads are going, where the application process is, because, you know, it's not only getting somebody in and convincing them to buy the home, they have to apply and you have to almost handhold them through the application process because there's, it's like applying for a home mortgage, right? They require a lot of documents and it's, it can take 30 days or more to get somebody approved and through the process. So, you know, closing on a home, it can be, and then they might, and not, they get might not get approved. That's what our experience was yeah. with 21st mortgages. Like, hey, you spend all this time, all this effort to kind of get all your ducks in a row. And like you said, you kind of have to hold their hand, you know, to get into the application process. And then at the end, up, oh, sorry, they don't have a 600 credit score, so they're not going to qualify. And you're like, oh, now I'm now I'm back 60 days. You know, I can't get those <laughs> 60 days back. I got to restart with someone new. So that's why we've we've done a lot with legacy. I think you and I spoke about that where they have like some mm -hmm. in-house financing gives you a little more flexibility, but yeah, there's a lot of options out there, dude. It's, it's yeah, tough. What we learned is that, I mean, and, and you have to rent. If you want to move quickly, you, you got to have the, the flexibility to rent these so you can get the occupancy quickly, you know, high occupancy, and then try to convert them after the renting. If they like the home and they like where they live, you try to convert them, but you don't make money on the rentals. So it's almost like a break even on the home. You at least try to break even on, the newer homes you can because there's not a lot of maintenance, but eventually we do want to convert them to home buyers and uh, it's a yeah. process. Totally. Is your investing strategy still, you know, the, the heavy infill value add type of parks or, you know, ha has your strategy changed, you know, from your first deal to your most recent one? It's definitely changed. I mean, I want to buy parks that are at least, you know, 60, 70% occupied. I won't buy it a 20% occupied park, I think, again, I mean, never say never, unless it's in a, maybe it's an amazing deal in a great location, but infill is very hard. I mean, and um, you need a lot of CapEx, especially if you end up renting. So um, uh, we still do that, you know, we still bought a big infill community, but it, again, it was an amazing deal that, it, you know, it was hard to say no, but I like to buy stuff that's a little more stabilized. You can start cash flowing Earlier. Uh, almost from day yeah. one earlier or you know at least in the first year and then infill and have all the value out of the other add value and rents and charging mm -hmm. back utilities 
Lower hanging fruit is what I call it. And my, my strategy is very similar. It's like, hey, if I can get something 70% occupied, that's kind of ideal. That way it, it cash flows earlier versus just sitting around, right? But that's really interesting that, the, you know, I think for LPs, you know, investors listening to this, there's an execution risk part of mobile home park investing with these value add deals. And, you know, if you find an operator that's more of a, a deal junkie that's just focused on always doing another deal and and not you know making sure that their ducks are in a row and that the execution of their projects is prioritized you know you could get into trouble and i've heard about some from some other operators that hey they closed on a ton of deals you know but their infill you know is is taking twice as long and costing twice as much because they're always focused on the next deal instead of you know getting the projects done and following the pro forma so that's uh, that there's definitely some risk there that I, I'm glad you brought that up. What what mistakes, Larry, have you made that our listeners can learn from in mobile home park investing? Well, going back to the infill, I mean, I, I bought too many homes too quick thinking they would because they were affordable. We will sell them like hotcakes. So I got stuck with uh, in my first park, I had like 15 homes in inventory at one shot and I was paying, you know, interest. Uh, on the loan because you, you you get a floor floor planning loan on these homes. So I was paying interest, I was paying taxes, and I was paying insurance to have these homes sitting in my lot. Plus, I paid all the setup costs out of pocket, and I had all this inventory just sitting at the park waiting to be sold. I guess the mistake I made was that I said I'm only going to sell because you know you always hear that everybody in the business and when I went to MH University and all that everybody always talks like no park on homes sell the homes so I had that and you know I I was so stubborn with that that I said I'm only selling I'm not going to rent and after like 6 months of eating all these uh, expenses I finally decided to rent and it was life changing for the cash flow of the property I mean it was huge to uh you know it it did cost me out of pocket because you got to put about 15,000 per home in capex to you know for installation and all that but i so i learned that i need a lot more capex if you're going to rent so what i do now when i perform i just assume i'm renting every home that i'm bringing in for infill i don't assume i'm going to sell it if i sell it it's 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 a bonus but i i'm not my performance are all about renting i just say i'm going to rent 100 percent of the inventory and if we sell it it's great, but if we don't, we're still fine because we perform at that. So that's that was my biggest Doesn't lesson. Doesn't that conflict with your park-owned home, you know, comment earlier about that being the hardest part? Like, how do you balance that? Well, it does, but now that I'm buying parks that need a few homes only, I'm not too concerned. Mm -hmm. I mean, the problem is when you're buying a park that needs 70% infill, that is more challenging. But when you need to bring, you know, 10 homes into a park a couple, to finish, yeah. it's not a big deal. Uh, but the idea is to eventually sell them and we do try to sell them. It's not that we're not going to sell anymore, but at least in my pro forma, I'm being conservative. And I'm saying, well, if, if we're not going to, if we're going to rent them, worst case is we need more money. And, you know, I, I guess I'm punishing my performance by doing that, but at least I'm being conservative and uh, we'll say more realistic, right? Unless I want to go yeah. slower and then I say, we'll sell maybe three, four homes a year, but then it can take forever to fill up a park like that. So we, we try to just predictable. You know, yeah, more predictable to be able to rent them, you know, quicker. So yeah, no, that makes sense. Larry, what are the most important things that passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? Well, I think the key is meeting the, you know, knowing the GP, I mean, really well, um, you know, 
getting references, understanding, you know, who's in their team, you know, really checking on, on the GP's background, on their past performance, you know, background check, if anything, or references with other investors. I think that's, that's number one is making sure that, you know, at least your money is, is invested with a, with a person that's going to do the best to take care of it and, and try to perform well with the capital. And I think two is look at who's in the team, right? Of the GP. I think that it's critical that there's a team backing up the GP who's going to be running these properties because it's not mailbox money. Like some people advertise, it's definitely very operational business. I mean, and that's why I like it. I'm an operations guy from my background. And uh, this is this is running a business, right? You're not running, I mean, you're not renting a warehouse where you're just collecting checks every month and you don't have to really do much about it. Here you're you're running a business. You have a lot of moving pieces. And so it's key to make sure that, you know, there's a team behind it that's uh, supporting the, the business plan. And I would say third is make sure you're aligned with what the business plan is for, for the, you know, the GP, what their, what their business plan is and that your goals are aligned with what they're trying to do as far as returns, time, timeline of a project. How long is it? You know, is it a long-term deal and you're okay holding your money for five to 10 years or whatever the plan is, you got to make sure you're aligned. So you're, you feel comfortable with the investment. Totally. And one thing that we kind of, you know, slip, uh, slid past really quickly is, you know, I like how on your first deal, where the deal that you mentioned, like, Hey, you brought in too many homes too, too soon. I like how it was only your money, right? Like you used your own money. You put your money where your mouth is on your first couple of deals. You cut your teeth. And now on the deals you do raise money for, you know, you have that experience that you you carry with you. So kudos right. to you instead of like learning on someone else's dime, you know, which I think a lot of other operators do. So Larry, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Well, I hear answer to this question is always the uh, public utilities and, um, <laughs> and, you know, everything's perfect, you know, a hundred plus lots and uh, no tenant, you know, all tenant owned homes. I think that, Yes, that's a beauty, but I don't think you can make a lot of money today with those parks. I think that what I like is having a park that has, that's been neglected, that needs uh, capex, that uh, where rents are low, they're not charging back utilities, where they're, you need to fix the park on homes, you need to demo old homes and really clean it up. I don't mind buying parks of park on homes if I really don't pay much for them because I lately what I do is I put zero value to a park on home to me now they're a liability especially the older ones you know 80s 90s homes they're worth zero in my books I think that you got to give them away and, and set up your lot rents high and that's that's a strategy that we use now we don't really give any value to those even though a lot of people think they are valuable when you really look at the numbers you probably don't make any money on those homes, especially if they're older, just, you know, you have to fix an AC unit at $6,000 yeah. to replace a furnace AC, uh, a roof, maybe 3,000. I mean, by the time you're done, you're spending going into these parks that have old, old inventory. I mean, our experience has been, you probably have to budget $6,000 a home that you got a CapEx instead of saying, I'm going to sell them for 6,000. You're probably going to have to put in 6,000. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, my my most profitable park was the third park I bought, where there were old park on homes, seventies, eighties, nineties. We basically didn't pay anything for them. We paid for the lot rent. We kind of assumed what lot rents were, 
no books. It was an, you know, an older lady, 85 year old lady. And we bought this park from her. And, uh, what at the beginning, I thought I was going to make a lot of money selling homes. And then we changed the strategy. I mean, my, my director of operations said, you got to give out the, you got to give away the homes for free. I mean, or sell them cheap so we can turn the park around. And after it took a while to convince me, but after listening to him, we, we sold the homes for a thousand dollars a piece. We got rid of them like hotcakes. And we brought lot rents from $83 that the lady was charging to some of the residents to $375. And now all direct bill utilities, all tenant-owned homes, and we're at $375 lot rents. And really, we have no maintenance anymore. It's very... And like, you know, I want to just pause right here because like what you did there, we've done a similar strategy. Like it's a win-win-win, right? Like Mm -hmm. you were able to sell these homes, which are definitely worth more than $1,000 to people that likely never thought they would be able to own these things. Mm-hmm. Like, and you are allowing the, the residents to become owners mm-hmm. and their lot rent is only three seventy five dollars a month, which is so affordable. Like where else in business does it make sense to give away, you know, something for less than it costs. And it's still a win for the investors, for you, for the resident. I, I just, I haven't found anything, you know, and I've invested in in other asset classes and it's just a unique scenario where like, Hey, you could change someone's life by allowing them to own this home and only pay three seventy five dollars a month. They're paying their utilities. Like that's super affordable for a family, right? Yes. I mean, it's, you can't beat it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really. A lot of times when we go around, cause we bought a park that was all park owned homes and we were converting 136 of them. And they're like, they think it's a, a scam at first. They're like, wait a minute, I, I can own this home for a thousand dollars. You know, I'm paying $800 a month right now, you know, straight renting this thing. I can own, I can own this home for a thousand dollars. And then my lot rent goes to, you know, 450 a month. Like, hold on, you know, this, this doesn't seem right. You know, and, <laughs> and when you really break it down, they're like, wow, this is so awesome. This is life-changing. Thank you so much. And they're so grateful. And like, it's a win on both sides. So I just, I love that part of the business. Yeah, I do also. Yeah. Larry, what do you think the future of mobile home park investing looks like? I mean, it's getting more competitive. There's more big, you know, players in the space, private equity firms. Uh, obviously, interest rates are high. There's, you know, possible recession, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen? How do you th- see mobile home parks fitting in with all this? Well, I still think it's a, definitely a great asset class. I mean, like, like we're just saying, you can't find anything more affordable for people to live in the U.S. Um, I guess other than if you're getting a Section 8 voucher, I mean, this is this is the lowest cost housing that's not subsidized by the government. So I I think it's definitely a, a great asset class to be in. I think that, you know, we're providing affordable housing to our residents. And, you know, I'm, I'm basically all in on this asset class. I really think it has a great future, um, limited supply, but it's also become more competitive. Uh, rates are definitely... You know, they're so high right now compared to where we were, the, you know, during COVID. I mean, I don't think we'll probably see rates that low in a long time. Um, so it's become very hard to pencil, you know, uh, deals in. And, you know, we were underwriting maybe three to four deals a week. We send it, you know, we're sending offers, but things are just not penciling in. The numbers don't work. Sellers still looking for the numbers they heard during COVID and or last year. And those rates are gone. I mean, now definitely rates are so, you know, much higher. So it's hard to make deals work. So I think it's, you know, we're patient, you know, we, we only buy, 
if we find the right deal. I mean, and if, it, if we just don't buy, if we don't, we our fund works on capital calls. So if we don't find the right deal, we won't call the capital. But uh, you know, we're taking care, of making sure that we're only buying the right deals for our investors. So, um, but I still think it's a great asset class to be in. I mean, it's it, it is becoming more institutionalized and it's getting more competitive, and you know, we're seeing more and more people competing for deals. But I still think that you know we're we're long on this we want to be in you know want to keep on growing on this as a class awesome uh, what do you think is the biggest threat to mobile home park investing the local community you know the local zoning or the the local you know the local governments you know that like the case i had in in wichita where they wanted to shut down the park you know you just have to be very careful when you're buying that you're getting the zoning and the zoning letters and making sure that you can bringing homes but yeah there's certain communities where you know actually the one we're discussing they have a, a clause there in the zoning that if a home is not replaced within six months you lose the site which is um i mean to me that's a threat to to i mean we're providing the most yeah. affordable housing in their city where they need it and on the other hand they're shutting down the you know they want to shut and shut down the mobile home park so it's kind of you know, I understand because a lot of these parks have been neglected by the prior owners. So sometimes the communities don't like them. But what we do is we clean up the parks, we you know pave the roads, you know do landscape signage. You know we're painting all the homes outside. We're making it really nice. Plus we're retenanting a lot of these places, right? It used to be where the where the police are there, you know, two, three, four times a day, and eventually they never come back. That's what you want from your you know from our parks. So that's kind of what we been able to achieve almost in every deal we bought where, you know, when, you know, in, in my first community, I saw the, the, the police having a coffee, a block down the park. I was having breakfast there. And I, I asked him, how's the, the park doing? You know, it was about a year after we bought it and they almost hugged me. They said, you know what, it's amazing what you've done with it. And, you know, they were so happy. I didn't have to go and deal with, you know, with, with crime there every day. They were, I guess they were bored, you know, because there was nothing else to do, but um yeah it was um that's what we try to do i mean so it's a challenge yeah is working with these cities to understand that we are making things better and providing affordable housing and to you know work with us on the zoning yeah no i think that is a big threat that regulation <clears throat> that and like rent control in certain states things like that wow yeah no one thing that you said that resonated with me was the fact that the, the city, if you don't fill the lot within six months, you lose the ability to fill that lot. And like adding affordable housing to these type of markets, like the Wichita's and these other secondary Midwestern markets, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense for developers to go in there and build affordable housing, you know, like single family duplexes, things like that. You know, typically builders, you know, make a profit off of the, the nicer luxury homes if they're going to develop a subdivision or something like that. So this is it is sad. And we've ran into the same issue where you have to go sit in front of the, you know, the board, the city council and improve your case that, Hey, we're going to improve this place. We're not going to run it into the ground. And, you know, I think it's becoming more and more common that this, the municipalities will require like an age minimum where it's like, Hey, we're buying a community right now. And if, if any home gets torn out of there, you have to bring in a home that's no older than 10 years old into the community. So they're trying to get, you know, brand new home stock so that it, you know, which that, that makes sense in some, some markets, but not every market can, can afford uh, a brand new, now that homes are $60,000 instead of 25,000, what they were before COVID, 
Mm-hmm. It changes the narrative. So uh, I agree. That is, there's definitely risk there around like the regulation and stuff. Larry, if any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, they can uh, email me at uh, Larry at broadviewcap.com. Uh, and also we have a website, broadviewcap.com or broadviewcommunities.com, which is the, our property management. Awesome. Larry, thank you so much for coming on the show and dropping all these golden nuggets. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah. What is, what is one last bit of important advice you would give an interested passive mobile home park investor just before we sign off? I mean, I think that if they're on the sideline, I think it's, you know, bet the operator and go for it because I think it's a great asset class to be in. I mean, I, I just big believer. This is a, a long-term growth strategy for your wealth. Totally. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show, Larry. Thank you for having me. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over a hundred five-star reviews by the end of 2021. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.